Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Attorney Vincent Davis. This is Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of this show is to educate parents and relatives and to show them or at least tell them where to go to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal levels. So let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning. Today's show, we're going to take, uh, I'm going to tell a quick story. We're going to take a few calls. And then at 8.30, we have a returning guest, uh, former CPS social worker, Terry Greenstein. Uh, Terry worked several years for the uh, CPS in Riverside County here in California, and he's going to be talking about things that affect social workers, uh, not only here in California, but I think across the country. And it's called Social Worker Incompetence due to the lack of training. So the first story I wanted to tell today is I was in about a case I had this week. Um, And and it shows a very important factor um, when you're dealing with a CPS case, either as a parent or a relative. And the factor is this. The attorney that you uh, work with, you have to make sure that that attorney is an expert in trial skills. Yes, the attorney should know the law in this area, but in many, many, many cases, trial skills and persuasive skills become extremely important, case in point. This week I did a case, and because the attorney on the other side, the opposition attorney, um, wasn't prepared for trial, and the attorney knew that we were prepared for trial, we ended up getting a resolution where it was favorable to our client. If your attorney is not prepared, when you go into court for a hearing or trial or what they call a contested matter in juvenile court, it is likely that you are not going to get the outcome that you want. Yes, it's the responsibility of the attorney to be prepared, but I think since this is your family that we're talking about, you should probably uh, assist the attorney in becoming prepared. You should meet with the attorney um, one or two times within, you know, seven to ten days of the court hearing. You should discuss what witnesses you think should be presented. You should discuss what exhibits you think should be presented to the judge. And you should probably do this in writing via email to the attorney so that when you folks meet together, um, you both will know what you want to discuss. Many times I hear um, clients come in and tell me, well, you know, I didn't meet with the attorney prior to the hearing, and we lost. And, you know, I only got to talk to the hearing, I got to talk to the attorney five minutes before we went into the courtroom. Yes, that's the attorney's fault, but I also say you bear some responsibility 
in making sure that your case is prepared the right way. And you can do that by constantly emailing your attorney or calling and leaving messages. I like email. They are saved and they are saved forever so that you have proof that you tried to or that you um, talked to an attorney or communicated with the attorney about your witnesses and exhibits. If you're going to a contested hearing and you haven't talked about witnesses and exhibits that have been subpoenaed to court or that are going to be presented to court, there's a problem, in my opinion. You, should, you must talk to your attorney about that as soon as possible. Don't wait till you've lost the case and you're taking the elevator downstairs and getting in your car and, you know, complaining, well, the attorney didn't put any um, witnesses on, didn't have any documentary evidence. Then it'll be too late. So take some responsibility yourselves to make sure and to help be prepared. Okay, I'm going to take our first call this morning from area code 650, ending in 12. Good morning, Hi. Attorney Davis. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? Um, I have a question to ask. Go ahead. Okay, so I am have a CPS case and. I'm just wondering in regards to housing uh, vouchers and what um, I've I've done everything that CPS wanted me to do. I've been to an inpatient program. I'm also in another program, and I'm not understanding why they're not willing to help me with housing to reunify with my daughter because I was supposed to go home to her father's house, but his mother is not allowing me to do that, so I feel like I deserve to um, have them help me reunify with my daughter. And at this moment, I don't have any income or job because of the program I'm doing, but I've been clean and sober for almost six months. And I'm, they're trying to say it's because I'm not in um, <clears throat> the reunification phase because we did get her back in 45 days, but she still is a ward of the court. So I'm wondering if I, there's any, I mean, I don't understand why I'm not, um, uh, a good candidate for a housing voucher through them or what I can you know, do about this very, to fight for that? That's a very good question. What state are you in? I'm in California, in San Mateo County. Okay. So let me tell you um, a quick story that I think may answer okay. your question. What okay. I think you should do is you and your attorney should review Welfare and Institutions Code in California, WIC, mm-hmm. Section 16,500, et cetera. Many, many years ago, I represented... Yeah. Welfare and Institutions Code, Section 16500. Okay. Okay. You can just Google it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Quick quick story. Um, Many years ago, um, I was representing a woman who had her children taken away because she was using drugs. Um, to everybody's surprise, during the six months of reunification services, she did everything. She tested clean. She went to her substance abuse class. She did her parenting. She did her individual counseling. When we came back for the six-month review, the social worker wrote in a report, I would give her the kids back today except for she doesn't have appropriate housing. Since she had lost the kids, Here in L.A. County, she had lost her governmental-funded housing through the 
city of Los Angeles, the housing authority, okay. um, because she didn't have her children. So she was basically living on couch to couch uh, with friends and family, but didn't have a place to take her children to. And she had five children. So I was thinking about it, and an interesting thing was said by the judge, and I think it was just an offhanded comment. I don't think he, I, you know, maybe he did know the law. I don't know, but it seemed like an offhanded comment. At the hearing, he said something to the effect that we're paying more for the foster care placements because out of the five children, there were three foster care placements. We're paying more in uh, foster care payments than we could pay if we could get her a home, you know, get her an apartment, you know, for her right. children. You know, that was going to cost less than 2000 and I think they were spending seven, close to $8,000 in foster care payments. So I asked the judge for a continuance, and I wanted to do some research on the issue, and I did some research. And what I found was in Section 16,500, I argued and successfully argued that the county of Los Angeles had to pay for this woman's housing. In the end, not only did they pay for her housing, but they bought her furniture, they bought her appliances, and paid for her rent for many, many, many months until she could get back on her feet, which she eventually did. So in my opinion, since you're in California, and it's probably like this in many states, there are sections of the Welfare and Institutions Code or the laws that govern these cases that people don't really talk about or cite in court. But if you look at um, um, Section 16,500, you will find cases, excuse me, you will find laws that will support the idea that you should be given housing to keep your children in a safe place. And when I did this motion, um, and it was many years ago, I found authority in other states where, and there were appellate and Supreme Court cases, I believe, where the court had said, yeah, you know, part of reunification services is helping the uh, parent with a home, you know, housing, if that is needed. Because when you really think about it, keeping the children in foster care is way far more expensive than helping somebody with their rent every month. Right. So, well, part of my issue, oh, I think, is that she's been returned to us, so she's in the care of my boyfriend, which we want to be together as a family, but like I said, his mother owns the house. But my CPS worker is treating me like, because she has a home to be in, that I don't count. You know what I'm saying? That we don't need to be together as a family, but that's our ultimate goal is to reunify as a family because we feel it's best for our daughter that, you know what I'm saying, we're together and she has both of her parents. So talk to your attorney about the World okay. Institutions Code, Section 16,500. You, you know, I would welcome you to Google it and start reading those sections, plural I sections, to see if you can carve or do a, um, an argument about providing housing. You know, yeah. In my case, many years ago, and I've seen this argued su- subsequently about other things, the uh, county argues that it's against the law in California for them to give gifts, which it is. But this wasn't a gift, actually a service to get the family back together. And I believe since you're in what's called family maintenance instead of family reunification services, yeah. in my opinion, the law is basically the same. So go ahead and find that out. You know, they're right. quick to take your kids and throw them in foster care and spend that foster care money, but they're not yeah. very quick at all to help you with housing to keep your children safe. You didn't okay. ask to be part of the system, and now that you are part of the system, you should get all the services and benefits that you deserve under the law. I hope that helps. 
and thank you for calling us today. And yeah, thank listening. you so much. You gave me a lot of hope. I really appreciate it. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I'm going to take another call, area code 209, ending in 74. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Benji Davis. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? I have a question to ask. Good morning, Mr. Davis. Um, my question is, my husband and I are going through a CPS um, case, and we went to court this last week, and they're, they're, they're saying they're willing to resolve with my husband, but they're not so optimistic with resolving with me. And so I pulled my public defender aside and said, hey, what do you mean? What does that mean? <clears throat> and she said that because we're in the jurisdiction, first of all, they've written uh, the jurisdiction disposition for dismissal. But um, because I violated a court order, not a, um, not a protective order, but a court order to not return into the home, just like your um, your previous caller said, I had nowhere to go, it was cold, and my husband had pity on me and let me in the house with the family. So he did have custody, but they remanded the kids uh, last uh, in December. And so they're, they're angry with us, so they decided not to go with their original plan of dismissing the case, but now they're writing a re- uh, a, another report. So even though um, this last Thursday we could have uh, asked for dismissal based on the fact that they had written a dismissal type report, um, they did a continuance because I'd asked for witnesses, and I, I didn't know that until listening to your um, to your lovely show. And I appreciate uh, all the information you gave us. So now we have to go back <clears throat> in a month, and they're saying that. I'm willing to resolve um, with my husband, but not me. At this point, I'm contesting. Um, if he resolves, meaning the jurisdiction saying, yes, you had a right to come in and take our kids, does that hurt my case? And can he be called as a witness on my behalf? The answer to the last Hello? part is yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Okay. So can he be called as a witness against you? The answer is yes. And you might want to count on that. I'm sure that they will do that. Now, whether, that, whether he resolves and takes a plea and you don't, that's an interesting question about whether that hurts you or helps you. In my humble opinion, um, I believe it is going to hurt your case. I believe that theoretically in the law it shouldn't hurt your case. But, you know, having done this, having been an attorney for 31 years now, I can tell you that, in my opinion, that it, it will hurt your case if you try to have a trial about it. Have you sat down with your so, attorney so, and discussed the different strategies you can you can take? Um, actually, this is the first time um, my public defender um, made an appointment to see me in person. And I don't think she would have done that if I had not been listening to your show and I've been pressing um, the law. I tried to give her a copy of the WIC 300, um, and she said, I know the law, 
but having listened to your show, I don't believe they have clear and convincing evidence against me and definitely not against my husband that we have we somehow could be a danger to our children and um so i because i've listened to your show i asked them to subpoena my daughter she's 10 and um they gave me pushback but now the judge ordered that she'll be in the court he did not order her to testify so I, I want her to be my witness. As a matter of fact, if my husband was called to be a witness, it would actually, I've done nothing. You know, it would actually be good. But I take your, I take your advice. What should we do about these witnesses? Should he have witnesses as well? Should he give in um, just to give the kids back? What they ultimately want is for me to leave my home. So they're okay with giving my my our babies to my husband, which is fine, but they don't want me in the home. Even though I haven't drank in six months, I am an alcoholic. I have no, I never did do any kind of harm to the children, but I've done harm to myself. Um, they want me ultimately out of the house. So I was given a suggestion last night to move down south where you guys are and leave the home, but that's not how we wanted it. So I don't, I'm so confused. Um, I guess my question is, um, should we press on and take the trial, both of us, or should one of us take the trial? Or what can we do at this point as a couple, as as a family? Okay, so... You're asking me a very difficult question because I don't know all the facts okay. of your case. I haven't reviewed the reports. Okay. Okay. But I think that mm-hmm. your, your husband should take the advice of his own attorney. Okay. Okay. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to assume that the attorney has your husband's best interests in mind. Now, understand something. What your husband does may not be in your best interest, but that's how our legal system Mm -hmm. works. It becomes very difficult and complicated and messy when you try to fight a case as a family, not as individuals. I know that sounds strange, but that's just how the law works. So, you know, you and your husband are separate in terms of legal advice, and there is nothing that you can say about well, what's good for both of us? The law doesn't work like that. Attorneys don't give advice like that. Okay? Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. So, if, but I, think, I, would say, okay. I would say this. If, you're, if you basically feel that you've done nothing wrong and that they don't have the clear and convincing evidence of a substantial danger with no less restrictive alternatives, I think, you know, you should go forward with at least your hearing. You know, there are some cases that um, support, I believe, your position as you have told it to me. There might be other things, but, you know, that I don't know about. But if you have had six months of sobriety uh, and you can prove that through testing and going to your classes and your AA sponsor, et cetera, I don't think they have the current to keep you out of the home. Okay. Out of the home. Now, one of the things that you might want to do is you might want to move out of the home 
and then have a trial about fighting and getting back in. That way, your your husband is almost almost guaranteed to get the kids back because you're out of the home, and then you can have a trial okay. to get back in the home because there's no clear and convincing evidence. But that's something you really have okay. to talk to your attorney about, you know, because the attorney has okay. the reports and has received the evidence. I have not. All right. Okay. Okay. Where do I find the no no less restrictive measures, sir? Where is that in the law? Okay. It, I would like to it Google is, it. I believe, okay. It's in Welfare and Institutions Code, Section 361.3. I believe that's it. I'm okay. not really good with quoting okay. sections. Um, but here's okay. the standard. So this is what I'm about to tell you is very important. So let me tell you this, okay? The way they do it in most courtrooms in California, not all, is they have the jurisdictional and the dispositional hearing together. Mm-hmm. Those are two different hearings, but they have them at the same time. There's different laws that apply, and there's different evidentiary burdens that apply. And different, you know, substantive tests the judge has to look at. What we're talking about is assuming that you lost the jurisdictional hearing to keep you out of the home and the children away from you, they have to prove by clear and convincing evidence that you're a substantial danger to the child and there are no less restrictive alternatives. Now, that's the test if your children are currently in foster care or out of your place anywhere except for with another parent. There's a different test, a lesser test, uh, if the children are placed with the parent, and I think it's a substantial risk of detriment. But it's very difficult, as you might imagine, and a lot of I, a lot of judges, you know, a lot of attorneys, I don't think realize this. To prove that somebody is, by clear and convincing evidence, a substantial danger to a child, I mean, that's saying a lot. And if you've had, if you, mm-hmm. you know, an alcoholic, you had six months of sobriety. You know, I'm, I scratch my head. How can you prove by substantial, excuse me, how can you prove by clear and convincing evidence that you're a substantial danger? Not a danger, not a risk, not a danger, but a substantial danger. And they also have to prove that there is no less restrictive alternatives. If you sit down and talk with your attorney, you know, there's probably three or four less restrictive alternatives that can come up to uh, stop the placement or to keep you out of the, you know, the, Keep you from being in the home. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Mr. Davis. Can I call back next week? You can call back as many times as you want. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you so much for everything. Bye bye. Thank you for calling. So I want to just tell our guest that the number to call in on is six four six 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 eight eight seven nine one. And you can listen to past shows at www.talkradioexperts.com. Talkradioexperts.com. Okay, we're going to take another call. From, this is from area code 772, ending in 16. Good morning. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm calling from Florida, and um, you know, I was listening to your other viewers, and it makes me nauseous. I've listened to your radio show a few times to hear countless occasions where 
um, CPS or DCF is mad at you, it gets mad at the parent for whatever reason, uh, because their, their pride basically, you know, has often been, you know, abused because we didn't say yes, yes, and we're at your, we're at your command um, when they're asking us to do superfluous deeds, excessive courses and classes when, when in the, the first instance we didn't even do anything abusive or negative, but they obviously are a big money-making business. So anyway, yes, um, so I had my son, my little four-year-old precious boy. I'm in my late 40s and my only child. Um, he was taken from school. He attended a Montessori, a private school. Um, he was taken from there. And uh, I just got him back a week ago, and um, it, it's been an arduous, arduous time. But your show has kept me, kept my spirits up and has helped me get through the time. I wish I would have found you sooner because I know indicatively that uh, um, that I would have gotten him back sooner had, uh, had I had a competent enough attorney to, you know, just do the basic things like, i.e., you know, meet with you five to seven days before trial rather than they're busy up until the very last minute and barely have 10 minutes for you prior to seeing the judge. Um, so, and I encourage your viewer, your listeners to to always go to trial, <laughs> um, even in the case that we may have done something wrong and been abusive or neglectful on accident or it was a one-time thing. Because, like, like just like you said, uh, Mr. Davis, it's quite difficult for somebody to prove that you're a substantial risk to your child, or risk, you know, let alone substantial. And also, what you touched on with your first call is that uh, you know you had you were able to work out a deal with the department because they weren't prepared for trials, prepared to um, artistically or creatively, um, how did you word it, um, negotiate or argue on the stand, present argument, and that's a very valid point I've seen throughout. My attorney was very cut and dry and to the point and, you know, dull, and all those things were, were to her detriment in a case like this because you do need to be creative. And part of being an attorney is not just pushing a pencil and, and paperwork, it's, you know, the ability to basically perform on stage, not, you know, categorically so like comical or anything of that nature. Well, perhaps if it applies, but, um, you know, to present, like you said, a, a, a creative or just, you know, the truth, an argument, but to present it in light of the facts that portray the parent properly instead of um, misrepresenting them like the DCF and CPS like to do. So, um, and then, so I did win at trial. Um, uh, the case was closed. There was no preponderance of evidence of neglect found. Um, however, the department, the CPS, DCF, and their all-powerful, you know, um, godlike superiority complex thought uh, they decided to keep my child despite having an in-hand court order stating there was no preponderance of evidence of neglect found on behalf of the parents. Um, so I, you know, I called supervisors, supervisors, and their answer was, well, we're not required to because the order does not state um, that as a subsequent consequence of not finding evidence of neglect, the child must be returned to parents. So this was missing. Yes, sweetheart, this was missing from the order. And um, so, yeah, so it was a technicality that they allowed to keep Mommy, them. Hold on so one second. Get so many um, juice bags there already. <laughs> Did you? Well, I'll do this out. I'll be right out. I love you so much. <laughs> so, uh, yes, thank you so much for the hope that you've instilled in me all these months. You know, I basically went to sleep for eight months. I would set my alarm for 
for days I had to go to trial or had any appointments, but I was so depressed. I felt like I had lost my life, excuse my heart, my life blood, my, my, you know, my, my right hand man. And, um, so yeah, thanks to you. I didn't emotionally die of a heart attack. (laughs) Well, let me, let me get this straight. Why did they, why did they take your child originally? Uh, because a passerby through the community um, called and said that he was seen unattended. When the reality was he was attended by our five-year gardener. Um, so the person, so DCF came out, you know, they proposed, they had to pretend like they wanted to work with me at least to give an appearance of them being some legal representatives. Uh, so they offered this safety plan uh, in, in ignorance, I complied. I was like, yeah, yeah, what do you, whatever you want me to do, you know, just don't take my child, you know, like a fool in retrospect, um, which I'll never do again. I have a big sign on my door reminding me, do not answer the door, <laughs> basically for anyone, um, and call an attorney immediately if they ever try and pull this type of shenanigan again. Um, however, uh, it was very painful going through. Okay, so I signed their safety plan, um, which was superfluous. As always, with all their their uh, requests, they wanted me to whatever services I didn't I don't have a problem with. I work from home, so I, you know I can do services all day long in my sleep. That's fine. However, they also wanted me to randomly out of the blue find somebody to move in right now that minute this Friday evening when she happened to stop by this uh, DCF um, evil worker of iniquity, uh, and she to supervise my parenting because he was so quote unquote seen unattended. I said, why don't you please go next door to ask the president of the homeowners association I live in, her and her husband, president and vice president, who are the eyes and ears of this small little block of only 20 something homes um, in a no no through U-shaped, no trespassing street. Um, She said that she didn't need to, she did not need to talk to the neighbors because she, the person who called in was, was a professional, something to that effect. But, oh, okay, so that's my first violation of rights there, and I'm going to investigate this anonymous call. Um, so I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Davis, where was in the story? Um, the child gets taken. Services, thank you. <laughs> Myself, thank you. So I signed the safety plan that wanted me to have somebody move in immediately. So I didn't have anyone to move in. My mother, who I was caring for, she passed last year. And my son had, and I had only moved here to take care of her in the last you know, year or two she had left. Um, so we didn't really know anybody. Uh, and so for, for them to want me to have somebody move in immediately, I said, well, you know, I'll have to look over the weekend and, and you know, get a roommate, find her service or something. Second. Ah! Yes, baby. So, um, can me and her go out the porch? Yes, you may. Yay. Uh, safety services. So this roommate, that was the issue that I could not comply with. So I have my son on my hip on one side, and I have my cell phone on the other going through my contacts for the last five years to try and think, you know, who could drive up from in where we're living, where I moved to take care of my mom, is two hours from our previous address. Uh, so anyways, I'm making phone calls, and, you know, I had a baby for five years, my first son, so I kind of became you know, a bit of a hermit, just wanting to protect him from the world and keeping to myself and nursing him and then taking care of my mom. And, you know, we have a quiet life. We go to church on the weekends, but not a whole lot of social activities other than his school and, you know, the park and 
and our church. So when they wanted me to have this roommate room in, I was like, that's absurd. I can't, but, you know, give me to the weekend. I'll work something out. She's like, no, now, or your son's coming with me. And he's like, mommy, no. And I'm like, what is this? Is this like happening right now in my home? I didn't say any of that. And reminder to your viewers, you know, listeners, try not to lose your cool ever and give them any more reason they do want their egos stroked. Um, anyway, uh, and so that was it. So I, I muster up somebody on my call list to actually end up being my mechanics, renter, friend, something, some girl with a child so who I'd never met, but I had to pretend like I had met. Uh, otherwise, this lady was taking my child. Um, so she pops over with her boyfriend and this little boy. I'm like, okay, this will be perfect. This will work out for a few weeks. I'm sure I can work it all out. So that ended up being me taking care of my son now and some reckless, crazy little boy that was not disciplined while this girlfriend, while this girl and her boyfriend shack up in one of my the bedrooms in my house for the, the weeks that follow. I'm like, how is this helpful to my child? So now my, you know, my really well-behaved son is now, you know, jumping off from the top bunk bed onto bed and doing crazy things that this, you know, boy stuff, but stuff he knows not to do. Now he's following this little other little boy. Yes, baby. Hello. Yes, Hello? sorry about that. Yes, I am here. Um, so yeah, so the, the roommate thing. So, so to shorten up this before I get too long is that was the inhibitor. So that girl didn't work out. Um, you know, on to the next, the next, and finally they just took him from the school and said I was not compliant and difficult and all this stuff. Let me ask you something. When they took your child, did they uh, present you with a warrant to detain your child? They did not. Did they ever get a warrant to detain your child, or they just took your child? According to the school director, uh, she said they did not present paperwork, but that they're instructed to always give the child to these people. Needless to say, he won't be attending there anymore. (laughs) You know, I I have a special guest that's calling in today at night at uh, 8.30. Is it possible that you can call next week? And I'll take your your call right at the top of the show because I would like to hear more about your story. Uh, It sounds uh, sounds incredible. Yes. Yes, no problem. That okay. would be fine. Again, thank you for your encouragement all these months by listening to your radio all right. show. All right, we'll talk next week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, we have a special guest on the line. Let me uh, click him in. Hi, Terry. This is Vince Davis. Good morning, Vince. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. Nice Saturday morning. You've appeared on the show before, but just for those people that haven't heard that show, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Basically, I was a social worker for the county of Riverside for about 14 years. And basically, I retired after being told to remove children when I thought they really weren't uh, warranted to remove the children. Uh, 
and now I uh, am a forensic uh, social worker, and basically uh, I go to um, court for people. I do document reviews. I help attorneys uh, as an expert witness on child abuse issues and incompetence uh, of social workers in child protective services and basically just to to help out um, because child welfare services you know when governed by a state or county are dealing with the task of investigating allegations of child abuse and neglect but it puts an aspect of politics into the agency. And and because of the uh, political ramifications of negative publicity, directors of the county welfare programs have a tendency to cover up mistakes by social workers and supervisors. And because of that, families and children are affected for their lives. Um, And this has to stop. Let me let me just say this. There is a need for child protective services. There are parents out there, and I'm sure people see articles all the time, of bad parents. What I'm focusing on is social worker malfeasance, social worker incompetence, and social worker uh, malpractice. And we were going to talk today about one of the reasons for those things is being training or a lack of training. Is that right? Yes. Um, Tell us. Well, you know, social work is not easy. You know, it, it, it's difficult to see and deal with these families, especially when children have definite signs of abuse. Uh, because this type of social work is not for everybody, there's just an extreme high turnover of social workers working for the county uh, child welfare agencies. In addition to that, high caseloads, lack of in, uh, lack of adequate training, and lack of experience causes most of the child welfare agency problems when it comes to social worker malpractice and malfeasance, incompetence, and misconduct. Uh, when I first started in 1997 for Riverside County, Child Protective Services was a very different animal. There was not a lot of politics. It was basically the mission was to help the family and help the kids. But over time, all the agencies have, have changed and changed not for the better, but for the for the worst. How the uh, because of the high turnover, training is is an inadequate. Now, when I first started with Riverside County, we had to go to three hundred and twenty hours of training in class and some field work before we were even allowed to be out in the field. In addition, we weren't basically alone. We had people to help us and show us the way. 
Today, they, they really don't do that. They, they train the social workers really quickly, and then they throw them out in the field, and they have no idea what they're doing. They become overwhelmed. They don't have good supervision. Uh, the training programs today just don't uh, train the way they train when I was going. And I don't think they offer the same trainings that I went to. Tell me the types of training that you were talking about. Oh, geez. Uh, my gosh. In addition to the, 20, the, the 320 hours, we were expected to uh, complete 20 hours of outside work, um, outside training per year. Now, they offer these trainings, but not to the extent that they did when I was trained. I, I, I was trained in forensic interviewing, I was trained in sexual and physical abuse investigations. I was trained on um, signs and symptoms of physical abuse outside the, the last training. They just, they just trained us. And do you think that social workers have ongoing training now? They do, but I think it's limited. From what I'm, yes. from what I heard, from what I heard, they just don't offer the same trainings because the trainings cost a lot of money, and social services, the, the counties don't want to pay for all this. The good, the real good training. So they bring in people from outside to do some of the trainings, and then they use people from from actually from the department for some of these trainings. Some of the trainings, though, that they have uh, that are mandatory that count towards the 20 hours are classes on how to use the computer. What kind of training is that for working out in the field? So, you know, you could, if you wanted to, you could take all these ancillary trainings, get your 20 hours, and have nothing to do with social work or very little. It, 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 it's it's frustrating. It's it's frustrating, Vince, when you when you talk to these workers today, and they know very little. They know very very little, and they make lots of mistakes, lots and lots of mistakes. And again, a social worker will always go to their supervisor. So what does it say about the supervisors? Uh, I don't know. It, it, it just seems like there's, um, I hate to say it, like a dumbing down of social workers. They, and with the high caseloads, they get lazy. They, well, let me give you an example. When I was a social worker at one time, we had, as an investigator, and we were only supposed to get 20 investigations a month assigned to us. We're getting up in the 60s and 70s per month. It's impossible to do that. 
Um, social workers who were also carrying cases had cases up to 60 kids. And there's and you, the social worker has to see their kids at least once a month. And it made it very, very difficult to do that when you have 60 kids. So it's the county's fault as well. Um, but I think it's just the high turnover uh, that's really causing this. There's just, there's just not, they're not trained. They get going. They see what they're doing. And believe me, it's, there's some ugly stuff out there. And they leave. I watched this. I watched lots of social workers just go, I, 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 I can't do this. And they leave. And they also, there was also in Riverside County two mass ex, exits from groups of social workers because of policies and high case loads and lack of training. So we, we lost most of our senior social workers um, oh, about 15 years ago. It was a mess. It, it was just, it was, it was a big mess. And who loses out on this? The kids and the families. They don't get their services. They get inadequate services. They get social workers who, who just do what we call drive-bys. It's, hi, goodbye, i got to go on and see the next kid. Um, it, it, the courts get crowded. You know, it just becomes a big, big, big mess. It's got to be cleaned up. It, the, the training has to be uh, standardized for all social workers. It, it, you know, Terry, I have a question for you. Sure. A few moments ago, you mentioned that you had uh, 20 investigations a month, and now people are, workers are doing 60 investigations a month. Is there any type of state policy and procedure or local county policy and procedure that limits the number of cases a social worker can be assigned? You know, I can see a social worker doing one investigation per workday. That's 20 um, a month. I can't see a social worker doing uh, three investigations per day, three different investigations. That, that would be, in my opinion, impossible. And maybe, you know, you know, I see a lot of cut and pasting these days from the detention report to the uh, jurisdictional and dispositional report. And maybe that's yeah. why, because they just don't have the time to do this work. Um, is, is there a policy and procedure on this? Yeah, actually, it's not a state. It, there's actually, oh, my gosh, back in 1994, 1990, no, wait, two, about 2001, I'm sorry. About 2001, uh, Riverside County was uh, a participant in studies, about caseloads, and I can't remember the name of the organization, but it's a big organization, and they set the standards for caseloads for social workers. An ER social worker, an investigating social worker, should have no more than 12 
This is their recommendation from many, many years ago. 12 investigations a month. 12. That's all they should have. Social workers who are carrying cases um, should have no more than 24 kids. Those were the standards. And, and it is a national standard. But I don't know a single agency in the United States that maintains those kind of standards. They, they, just, they just can't. But, you know, yeah, there are standards. Why can't they? Lack of staff. Lack of staff and high turnover. Let me explain one thing about an a, a, a investigating social worker. They get cases, they get their investigations, but also during the day, at least in Riverside County, if an emergency comes in, there's a rotation, and you could be in the middle of something somewhere, and you get a call that's an emergency, and you got to go there right now, which adds another case. So it, it gets a little crazy at times. And when there are less social workers, those emergency calls get more frequent. So you, you, you can get you can be on top of your caseload, but become instantly overwhelmed with an emergency that could be, and most of the emergencies are pretty, pretty bad. Otherwise they wouldn't call you, you know, to come immediately. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough. You can be, like I said, you can be on top of your game one minute and then you're behind the next. As far as the, um, Juris Dispo, the social workers who do that, I'm, I'm, I'm disgusted, Vince. Um, they are basically court investigators, and they are supposed to just take the information from the uh, detention report and build upon that, go out and do their own investigation. But they don't do that anymore. They, like you said, they cut and they paste. It's, I don't know if it's being lazy. I don't know if it's just the number of cases they have, but in the documents that I've read in the last few years, um, there's, no, there's no real difference between a detention report and a, and a Juris Dispo report, except the Juris Dispo report just a little longer. Well, Terry, let me ask you this. What you're telling me is key information for people to know if they're going to fight CPS in court. If, you're, if, if your worker is supposed to be limited to 20 cases per month and she's doing 60 work or he is doing 60 cases per month, there's no way they can do a proper investigation. There's no way. It's physically impossible. No. Are no, it, 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 it is impossible. Are, do they, and, are, are social workers required to fill out timesheets about the amount of time they worked on any particular investigation? In Riverside County, we would every quarter have to do what's called a time study. But let me tell you, with all the other stuff that social workers have to do, when they get extra paperwork that's not really attributed to social work, 
they just we just just put in numbers just to make sure all the numbers fit so there's there's no there was no real computation of the actual number of hours that a social worker spent on specific aspects of social work during the day they do do it but the 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 information is no good well, let me, and they let just me ask do, and they question. just do that they do that for money we're going to get to that but let me let me find out this question let's say i'm a social worker and i'm working today on saturday and i do i visit three or four homes and you know talk to four to eight children do i have to write that down someplace and and provide it to my supervisor, some timekeeper, CWS, CMS system. I mean, do I have to report my time, what I do today? Yes. Yeah. Where, where do I report? When, when, where, would I report you, after, where would I report well, that I'm, time if I worked for Riverside? Well, you wouldn't report the actual time, but the time spent when you're doing your uh, your case notes, on, CM, on the computer system will log all the times. So there is, there, is, there is no requirement for a social worker to say I work this many hours on this piece, this many hours on this piece. It's whatever's in front of them. A social worker, a few weeks ago I was um, cross-examining a social worker and it became apparent halfway through the examination that this social worker who wrote the Juris Dispo report had spent very little time on the case and just basically had cut and paste what the uh, mm-hmm. detention report said from the emergency response worker. And I want to, you know, I want to find out, now that you're mentioning this, in cases of civil rights cases when I'm suing social workers or in cases where I'm in juvenile court fighting CPS to get the children back, I want to find out how much time a social worker actually spent on a case. You, are you telling me there's no mechanism for that? No, there's no mechanism for that. Like I said, the only thing that they do to look at time spent is in Riverside County, and I can only speak for Riverside County, was a time study once a quarter. And like I said, we just filled it out, made sure that the, everything matched up, that the numbers were correct, and just sent it in. We just didn't have the time to sit there and do it. I, I don't think there's any, any agency that really has done a study like that. That would be an interesting study. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not even concerned about the study right now. Um, I'm just at the beginning stage. And I, I, this is hard for me to believe. It must be a law or a policy or procedure somewhere. If I'm a county employee, I, have, I should be required to turn in a daily timesheet of what I did. Now, that the must only? be some payroll, payroll requirement. It must be somewhere, some type of requirement. Now, I can believe that, you know, maybe CPS or departments all over the county are not enforcing that. But I would bet you a dollar that that's a requirement. You know, I, I would I would think so. Um, I was never uh, informed or instructed 
to, to fill one of those out. The only thing that a social worker does when they, if you're going out in the field, in Riverside County, we would have to write down where we were going. No times, no that, but just so, the, so they knew where we were at in case of an emergency. But that was the closest thing, and we had to turn those in once a month. But those just went to the supervisor, and that was it. I, I, that, that's the closest, Vince, that we came to any kind of where I was, but there's no time attached to it. I find that, I, I find that almost unbelievable, fascinating, even. Believe me, and, and because of the, again, I hate to say this, because, because of the uh, amount of latitude the social workers are given because they're out and about, social workers have been caught at movies, they've been caught sleeping, they've been caught doing all kinds of things when they should be working. So when they're caught, when they're caught sleeping or at the movies, instead of working, um, are they disciplined? Does it go in, in in their personnel file? Oh yeah, it's they do a, a county HR, county human resources will do a whole investigation and things like that. They'll bring you in. You have to bring your your union representative, and it becomes a whole it becomes a whole disciplinary procedure, and they have the rules and regulations of how they do the disciplinary procedures. So they just follow that. But do you know if that kind of information is discoverable in a lawsuit? It, I don't, well, I don't know what the laws are as far as getting into someone's personnel file because that's the only place it would be. So if you could get, get into their personnel file, it would be in their personnel file. Okay. Well, Terry, we're running out of time. Um, I'm definitely going to have to have you back because we really didn't get to delve into this subject like I wanted. <laughs> You're telling me things that are making me think about better ways to defend parents in CPS cases and juvenile court and better ways to prosecute social workers uh, for violating civil rights. I want to thank right. you for um, calling in today, and I'll uh, give you a call during the week, and we're going to have to set another date for you to come back. By the way, I wanted to tell you, since your last appearance, I've gotten a tremendous um, positive feedback, tremendous positive feedback from the listeners. Uh, they love listening to you and hearing what you have to say about being a former social worker and I think it gives them um, some comfort and security uh, that uh, some of their suspicions about social workers are correct. So we're running out of time. I want to thank you again for calling in, and we'll talk about having you back. Okay, Vince. Thank, thank you. Sure, please make sure to visit me on YouTube and at uh, fightchildprotectiveservices.com.